Good evening, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland, and I'm one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. And in case, if you're not listening to this in the evening, hello. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. With me are my shipmates for Star Trek, Donna Nicholas, excuse me, Donna, Dana Nicholas and Nari Ely. And yes, it has been a super hard week at work. Uh, mm -hmm. Long, long days. Uh, but we're here to talk about Picard. And I just got to say, this season's hitting all the feels for all the great parts of TNG, TOS, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, all the things I love about Trek are in this season. Dana, how are you doing with Love and Picard? I love Picard. I love the show. I love that all of the characters, my favorite characters are coming back. I wish they had come back sooner. The only person that I do not love on the show, once again, is Shaw. Just saying. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be a convert. Well, I, I, I really like Shaw. I like all of it. So I, I, I'll go ahead and be the Shaw fan here. <laughs> no, I'm definitely a Shaw fan. It's, and it's not just because I also like Malbec. It's, he's, he's good. So, and he's had a nice character arc and I appreciate him being dynamic. But we get to see all of the heroes from TNG come together uh, slowly but steadily as this season has progressed. And the, we're going to cover three episodes in, in this podcast. The Bounty, Dominion, and Surrender, which sounds like a perfume from France. So, if not French foreign policy. So, let's talk about The Bounty. I absolutely love this because it was fan service done right that moved the story along by going to the Fleet Museum and just getting to have starships that we've seen it was i i agree seeing the enterprise a was very moving but we also got to see the defiant we got to see voyager we got to see chronos one that was uh the chancellor's uh, flagship in undiscovered country there's a romulan warbird over there and i think the stargazer one is in there as well or at least the same class of ship uh, we also see the New Jersey, which is a Constitution class ship, pre-refit. So again, it's just, just a love letter to Starship nerds and getting to see spaceships, which again, who doesn't love that? But having a decommissioned military vessel on display makes for some fun things to think about with museum ships because there are museum ships that we have in the united states that could be put back into service if the navy needed them now that would mean some very bad things have happened so we have four iowa class battleships the iowa the obvious one the missouri that's in pearl harbor iowa's in san pedro california you have the uh new jersey in new jersey and you have the USS Wisconsin in Norfolk, Virginia. Of those four battleships, theoretically all could be put back into service, but the one that's the easiest to put into service would be the uh, uh, Wisconsin because 
it's preserved all the way through. So you can only tour the deck. The, the entire ship is sealed. So uh, I've been on board to tour the deck and knowing that there's all these treasures down below in the event Marines ever need 16 inch guns to do shore bombardment. On the other three, you can go tour them. Uh, scouts can spend the night on the Iowa. You know, so there's, you know, like they do educational programs now, uh, but God forbid we ever need a battleship again that to be able to shell a country while we do a, an invasion. So uh, Wisconsin would be the easiest to put back into service. In theory, the Midway in San Diego could be put back in service if needed, but there's a lot of tourist uh, attractions that would need to be removed in order to do so. So theoretically, the same thing could apply to those ships in the museum fleet, that they could be put back into service depending on how decommissioned they are. Like if warp cores have been removed, every, you know, like if they've like, the one example would be with some warships will take out the propellers off so they can't go anywhere even if they could uh on the flip side some still have them so in the event that you need a propeller for a battleship it's still there so but i think the example the pampanito submarine in san francisco took the propellers off so you can't go take the submarine for a joy ride so Anyway, I just nerded out about that, but we get into the issue of borrowing a cloaking device from the bounty that was used in the voyage home to go save the whales. Uh, who would like to take the issue of trespassing in order to go steal a cloaking device? Uh, well, so I was thinking we would get to the trespassing uh, when we get to the part where they are on days from station. So maybe we can bookmark oh. that one because that's a much more poignant example. <laughs> So this will will that will get compounded in just because, yeah, there's a trespassing factor here. But you're totally right in the sense that uh, there you, you we could run this analysis here. Um, we'll 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 fold that back in. Remind me, Josh, to compare with uh, 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 going on to this state this station, this museum station, um, uh, for 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 this purpose. So remind me to do that. Um, yeah, notice I went straight to the ships. So yes. yeah. See where my mind goes. You're a ship guy at heart. Yeah, it's, I, I like boats and airplanes and spaceships. It's just, I'm really easy to shop for. So uh, I love my enterprise. So, I, I'm really easy to shop for too. I love diamonds and other things. What I, what I didn't love, however, um, was uh, on Vatic's ship at the very start of the episode, we see that her underling shoots a coworker um, because they're trying to figure out, we got to go catch Picard. We got to get Jack Crusher. You know, we can't let this happen. And he's like, uh, well, we only have like a couple days left and uh, we don't know where they are. And we're all really tired. And they're like, Psh, and disintegrate him. So, I mean, does that create a hostile work environment for him? Absolutely. And does it create a hostile work environment for everyone else? And, and I would argue that it does. So watching your coworker be vaporized yeah, that's a that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. Nari's like, oh my gosh, I know she didn't just go there. But <laughs> it could be also argued that if you are a marauder working for uh, changelings, maybe it's an assumption of the risk. You're out there creating uh, felonious conduct. And so maybe it's part of the felony 
the felony murder rule. Like, you know, you're, you're out committing oh, crime. The felony murder to- rule. Oh yeah, I know. You're out committing crime. What happens to you happens to you. I think that's a great analogy. Uh, I do think there's also potentially like when you started talking about this, my mind started running through and how would someone get a remedy for this? So I think you also run into the problem of contracts against public interest where you're going to get thrown out of court if you try to show up in court and argue that uh, you were entitled to more pay or better working conditions for work on a marauding murdering vessel. I was owed more for my murder. <laughs> but they, they may have thought that they were acting in the right because, you know, after all, Starfleet invaded their, their homeland and gave them a virus that, you know, really harmed and, and killed quite a few of them. So during, during a war. So it's not. We, oh, so it's a war ever, crime. Yeah, I, I was yeah. going to say, Josh, I don't know that we ever podcasted about this because it was the events of Deep Space Nine, which is, I think, before at least I started podcasting. Yeah. But. Oh boy, that's a that's a that's a genocide. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for that one. Um, nuclear weapons are but themselves a war crime. So, all right, here we go. Here we go. If we're going to talk about this, I have thoughts. I'm going to give it some quick thoughts. So, um, uh, so the topic of nuclear weapons. So, like, I think there is like, if we're talking about the Dominion War and the Federation's use of a biological weapon that arguably was attempted genocide, uh, that is that is definitely outside of the the law of war. It's against international law. Uh, we now have at least now have treaties regarding genocide. Um, uh, it is it is a complicated topic. And the best argument that I have for why it was uh, for why it was justified, I will not say there's like a there's a big asterisk here where it technically meets, I think, the definitions of certain uh, violations of the law of war. And I don't think you can seriously argue that it didn't. However, I think the most serious arguments on the other side are that it was justified um, because uh, our uh, the the opponents, the the Japanese and on whom the atomic bombs were used in World War II, uh, were arguably not following the law of war, but not just not following, because that happens quite a bit, but not even playing lip service to following it. Uh, we're, we're not acknowledging it as a thing. Um, and you had all kinds of horrible atrocities committed by the Japanese military on occupied civilians, on POWs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in a situation where I think you are facing perhaps uh, an enemy who is not paying even lip service and not acknowledging the law of war that you are trying to follow. Um, and this is not this was not really the case with World War II, but it is the it is something to think about when we're talking about these science fiction examples. Um, and if you are facing perhaps an existential threat where it is not sort of the traditional way that we conceive of war of one nation maybe dominating another, but instead we're talking about one people exterminating another. Those would be the circumstances in which I think you are most strongly justified. I don't know for sure if you in fact are, but that's the strongest argument for when you might get a pass for violating the law of war. I don't think that 
was the case with the Dominion War um, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, and feel free to give me some examples, uh, mm -hmm. Josh, of the opposite. But um, as I think the changelings in this show point out, uh, the Dominion was executing a traditional war <laughs> against the Federation. They were trying to occupy territory. Their ultimate goal was to dominate politically or, you know, in, in a sovereign term, but not to exterminate the peoples uh, that lived in the Alpha Quadrant. Um, you'll have to remind me, Josh, if they were following uh, uh, the laws of war, but it appeared to me that they, if I remember, and I don't I haven't researched Deep Space Nine to prepare for this, but I think they, they largely were. So the, the Dominion used something called the blight on a population that refused to surrender to them. That was a biological weapon that uh, killed them. So they would, and it was generational. So they had lesions on their faces uh, and, and had a quickening death uh, type scenario. So they- Specifically used... in the war against the Federation is what I'm looking yeah. for though. Because yeah. like, if we're going into like, have you historically violated the law of war? That's another analysis. And I don't know that it's the most appropriate analysis, but I think Josh, we can research that. That sounds like mm -hmm. a blog post. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah but... I- I mean, I don't think it's a, for the society that's supposed to be about justice and freedom, opening up with a virus weapon early into the campaign is problematic, but they were concerned with getting overrun. And when you get to Cisco in the pale moonlight, he's willing to make some very big trade-offs with his own morality in order to get the Romulans into the war so they don't lose the war. I totally get that. In the law of war, though, we think we're losing is not a pass. Yeah, but history is written by the victors. So if you're going to be- the law of war is a, is a collection of traditions and norms, and it is not automatically rewritten by the victor. And I think that one of the things that makes that so egregious is that, you know, if we look at the- um, the, the atomic bomb that we dropped, we weren't we weren't exterminating all Japanese everywhere. Yeah. But in this instance, the Great Link, they're all connected, right? So it's not like we're just getting we're not just targeting enemy combatants. We're targeting all of them, and that's. Yeah, I think I think that is absolutely correct. That it is also I'm using this. Uh, I'm using the 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 A bombs on Japan as as the closest real world analogy that we have. But it is this one is way worse. <laughs> It, it's way worse. And then I will invoke the Trump of all Trump cards. I will invoke Michelle Obama. When they go low, we go high. Yeah. Uh, there, there is a biolog biological example from World War II, and that was the planned Japanese attack with poisoned fleas on San Diego that was supposed to launch in September 1945. So their plan but was- was it poisoned fleas that would exterminate all Americans? <laughs> exterminate san diego yes biological <laughs> warfare is also something that uh violates the law of war independent of the idea that we're going to be attempting genocide <laughs> and or as dana pointed out also targeting uh an attack that has essentially by its nature is it will not discriminate between combatants and non-combatants which is another like cornerstone of the law of war uh so it, which is a, another complicated analysis like it depends on where the, there's a military target and what it how proportional that is to the civilian damage but in this case 
there's this is like this is like a law school hypothetical because it's all the changelings. There's there's not a real analysis to perform on that side. No, but it also gets into the following episode of Vatic was tortured at Daystrom uh, for to be turned into a wonder weapon. So they again all kinds of crimes taking place here that you don't experiment on POWs. The Japanese did in China using microwave weapons. And the log books that were recovered, they don't say they tested the weapon on a person. They say monkey. And that was how they referred to anyone of Chinese descent that was a victim of their weaponry. So yeah, there's there are ugly examples to to get into with uh, world history, and I mean Picard's done a good job of like touching on those. I mean it, it's the um, uh, Twilight Zone effect that Rod Serling couldn't talk about racial discrimination because people in the South wouldn't watch it and the networks wouldn't carry it. It was. I'll talk about a robot instead to get the point across. And uh, we're finding ways to continue telling those stories using pop culture. But. Sorry, that was a long aside about something that was referenced, but technically didn't happen in this episode. So let's talk about breaking into Daystrom. Walk us through it, Nari. Uh, absolutely. Okay, so um, uh, it will surprise no one that it is a crime to trespass on a government facility or <laughs> installation. Yeah, if that's a surprise to anyone, I'm sorry, you have a lot of reading to do. <laughs> um, uh, this specific statute is 18 U.S.C. section 1382, entering military, naval, or Coast Guard property. Uh, and there are two paragraphs to this. The first one is the one that is most relevant to us. Uh, whoever within the jurisdiction um, of the United States, the United States being our typical stand-in for Starfleet or the Federation, um, goes upon any military, naval, or Coast Guard reservation, post, fort, arsenal, yard, station, or installation for any purpose prohibited by law or lawful regulation, uh, uh, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than six months or both. Um, so it's important to note that, uh, first of all, our, our heroes here are, in fact, gaining entry for an unlawful purpose, which we'll cover in just a second, which is stealing government property. <laughs> um, but uh, for the curious out there, uh, oh, and this is a great opportunity, Josh, for our usual disclaimer that nothing on this podcast should be construed as legal advice. But it should be noted um, that in general, although it says in this statute that it, it doesn't prohibit all entry, prohibits uh, uh, unauthorized entry for unlawful purpose. Um, that unlawful purpose is automatically satisfied if the government premises, military premises in question, do not permit entry to the public. So this is the thing I wanted you to remind me about, Josh, <laughs> uh, which is the, the museum station. It seems to me that the museum station does permit entry to the public. Uh, so in that circumstance, had our had our heroes uh, simply entered that station, uh, they would not automatically uh, be subject to that uh, extra uh, step. Um, they would have to also have entered for an unlawful purpose. Of course, they entered for the unlawful purpose in that circumstance of stealing a cloaking device from one of the ships, um, which is going to, again, get us back into stealing government property. I'll get into that in just a second. Um, so either way, uh, in 
both the circumstance of Daystrom Station, in which they it is not open to the public, so it's an automatic violation, and they're going on to commit another crime, um, and in the circumstance with the museum ship where it is open to the public, but they're going on to commit crime, uh, they are running afoul of this statute. Um, uh, so uh, should I just dovetail right into the, the stealing oh. government property? So <laughs> it will also surprise no one that it is a crime to steal government property. Um, so in this case, uh, the cloaking device in the museum ship, I think we can agree um, whether or not it was originally the property of the Klingons um, is now in a ship uh, that is possessed by Starfleet and is sitting in a museum. Um, so it would be government property, and uh, that would be 18 U.S.C. Uh, 641, uh, public money, property, or records. Um, whoever embezzles, steals, purloins, or knowingly converts to his use or the use of another, or without authority, sells, conveys, or disposes of any record, voucher, money, or thing of value, nice and broad, uh, or of any department uh, of the United States or of any department or agency thereof, or any property made or being made under contract for the United States or any property or agency thereof. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> um, uh, uh, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than one year or both. Um, so in this circumstance, I think once again, our heroes, while they may be morally justified in what they are doing, are running afoul of this statute, both on Daystrom Station and at the museum. Uh, so for the at the museum, they are, of course, stealing a thing of great value, which is a cloaking device on a Klingon warship. Um, uh, in the case of Daystrom Station, they're arguably not stealing a thing, although they end up they end up stealing the security system. <laughs> but uh, they, they went in to steal a record. Uh, but that is, of course, something that is also uh, covered by this statute. So in both circumstances, I think they are violating uh, uh, 18 U.S.C. Section 641. But I would argue that data is a person. The data lore kind of thing is a person. So can you really steal a person? Yeah, I mean... Dana, I'm going to agree. I think they're liberating but. him. But. <laughs> He's locked in a trap. But someone who wasn't uh, um, there uh, of his own accord, it was actually the body of Picard. So Bic the body of Picard is at Daystrom Station. And I would argue um, that Vatic and all of her evil henchmen, uh, that they have committed grave robbing. And under the New York Penal Code, uh, 145.26, Aggravated cemetery desecration in the second degree is a class E felony. And that happens if you dig up a coffin, open a crypt, or do anything to disturb human remains. Um, and that could include uh, similar vessels containing human body parts or human remains, uh, which have been otherwise interned, buried, or stored. So I think that's a clear violation of that law when they happen to take Picard's uh, piece of his brain. Absolutely. Yeah, it's desecration of a corpse. It's it's not okay. Let's not forget that the body of James T. Kirk is also in Daystrom Station. Yeah, what but, are they doing with all the bodies of people? Yeah, with a with a biobed sound going. So the the showrunner has stated that the last episode will have a post credit scene. I bet dollars to donuts. It's like Kirk like his bio bed opening or something. So as, as a tease, but I've been wrong before, but 
you don't just throw out the body of of a, one of the greatest captains ever and leave that Chekhov gun unfired. So, but again, I've been wrong before, but I wouldn't be surprised if we get some Kirk action. I'm going to fall out of my chair if that happens. Yeah, it's just, again, it would be wonderful fan service. So, wow, Nara, you covered a lot. Um, just to go with the the HMS Bounty, uh, you know, okay, that was a Klingon ship commanded by Krug, faced off against the Enterprise. Enterprise is destroyed in order to be a fighting chance for life, and the crew of Enterprise commandeers the Bird of Prey, the other warship. I think that's justified and legal. Uh, and the example that I have from it is U-505, when during World War II, it's the only time that uh, we had a ship go out right before D-Day, so they didn't make a lot of noise about it, and uh, our Navy captured a German U-boat, and they, they sent a boarding party over after forcing it up to the surface, captured that bad boy, captured the crew, and uh, the the leader of the boarding party was able to stop the German scuttling device from going off and sinking the boat. And thus there are cool pictures with the with U-boat with flying the US flag. And that's now in the Museum of Science and Technology in Chicago. And it is super cool to go see it with how they they got it there after sometime I think in the 60s um I was going to ask how did they get it to Chicago <laughs> the river you know so it's the great lakes so the new 505 was used as a training sub by the navy for a bunch of years uh renamed Nemo and the uh I've gone on two tours over two different time periods so the first tour was like cut out and you walk through and there was the docent that talks you through it. The second version, years later, they rebuilt the sub pen. So like this thing is sitting, it's like they got it through the lakes and then through downtown Chicago and then built the building around it. And uh, it's like a 4D experience going through the submarine because when they turn off the lights and the you know you get the depth charge experience, it is way scary and way dark. So it's it's like being in a cave. Um, so yeah, uh, depth charging, not fun. But we did commandeer a German U-boat. And boy, howdy, that that is kind of like American gumshoe right there. And goes to a privateer nature as well. So I think it was totally right for them to take that Klingon bird of prey and then go once again, save the earth. Which also means like... The cloaking device used by Kirk, Spock, and Scotty, like Scotty touched that. Now, the Forge touches it too and uses it. I just think that's really neat that once again, it's being helping help save the day. But let's talk about data, lore, sum, lol being used as a security system. Data, lore, sum, lol before. Before, I'm sorry, I missed one. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is a can of worms. <laughs> so my first thought on this, uh, was, so it, it's an interesting 
It's an interesting question. So as to whether or not uh, data is essentially being forced to work here. So uh, and a threshold question, I think, which is uh, at least somewhat interesting, is whether or not this is like the, the security system here is actually data, or I'm using data for short here, this amalgamation of these consciousnesses. Because um, uh, he seems to be, um, you know, obviously not in full possession of his own body, um, but does appear to be at least somewhat conscious of what's happening, um, which is why once the the security system recognizes uh, Riker at all, uh, uh, the security system starts um, um, putting into place uh, security measures that are essentially designed to to communicate, to signal uh, to, to Riker and team uh, things that will remind them of data because you know data seems to be trying to communicate with them um, and ultimately lets them in, if I remember correctly, uh, in order to find uh, his 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 body. Um, so I'm going to assume here for for purposes of this analysis that we we are in fact talking about data um, at least in a sem semi conscious state as opposed to you know simply something something running through its uh, his body's circuitry but not actually data. Uh, and in that case. Uh, we have some problems <laughs> because this is essentially um, involuntary labor for no compensation. <laughs> um, and also, I'll, I'll get to the second part, um, not seeming to respect any labor laws. So, but the first and most important one is, of course, that this is arguably a violation of the 13th Amendment. Um, uh, 13th Amendment, Section 1, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Uh, this is a subject that we can get into in a second um, as to whether or not days from station is a place subject to federation jurisdiction. I think uh, I would argue that that it is. Um, in that case, this appears to be involuntary servitude. I'm, I'm not sure it wasn't really covered if they asked this amalgamation of consciousnesses that they wanted to be employed in this fashion, but it seems unlikely uh, given the practices of the Daystrom Institute. And uh, is it sec section 31? Is that right on this? Yes, on this facility. Yeah, it's like, let's leave you standing guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year at a location that you don't want to be at. Like that's, that's absolutely um, not reasonable. And I could see that neither data, lore, soon before, uh, none of them really wanted to be at Daystrom Station. And there's no indication that they wanted to be there. So I, I concur. I think that this is definitely a violation of the 13th Amendment. And then, Dana, we also have labor laws. So <laughs> I think, yes, yes. I mean, it's it's labor kind laws. of a moot point because he's not being paid, but I bet they're not paying him overtime. <laughs> he's not getting his meal breaks, right? Like yes, exactly. In in circumstances, at least where there um, is uh, especially physical labor involved and usually security guard is something that fits into that category because you're, I mean, he's patrolling the base in a sense. Um, and like you said, standing guard in a very literal sense. Um, there, there are often mandatory amounts of breaks and mealtimes, um, sometimes maximum amounts of time that you can work uh, during a certain period. Uh, there's also lots of requirements for being able to take certain kinds of leave. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt they're allowing him to take uh, personal medical or family <laughs> leave. Um, so it's just there's, they're essentially ignoring all possible labor laws that could possibly apply. Uh, and in addition to violating the 13th Amendment, I think data could perhaps bring suit for a, a lot of back pay. 
with liquidated damages. So one thing that I was curious about was how long has he been standing guard? Was the, did Soong like bring him there after the events of season one of Picard? So we might be dealing with just a year or two of being used this way, or has he been there for, you know, since the events of Nemesis with his consciousness, because before it was at Daystrom Institute, not Daystrom Station, uh, but that didn't mean that a copy of Data's positronic matrix could have been installed, uh, you know, 20 years ago. So those are unknowns. And I don't know if we'll ever get an answer to that. You're, you're absolutely right. And during the episode, Picard actually says, hey, look, I had to lose you once. You told me to let you go. And I don't want to have to lose you again. Um, and so we don't, we just don't know. Yeah. And it, it raises an interesting issue of personhood. If you're getting copies of yourself made and activated in different places, Um that are thus then having different experiences. Uh, so again, it's a very weird issue with artificial intelligence and it's suddenly becoming portable and downloadable as opposed to just being in one positronic matrix and that's just where we know them as opposed to getting backed up in different locations. And, and I think every lawyer out there wishes that they had a clone at one point, especially during discovery, right? Or oh, trial. Yeah. You wish that you had a clone to help split the workload. You're like, this would be cake if there are only 12 of me. Um, yeah, but you're still getting paid as one person. And then you need to, unless you get like reabsorbed in. But um, but and, we know that's complicated thanks to the Tuvix episode. Yeah, yeah. There's There's a lot out there. Now, we do have a note here about uh, Beverly disclosing to Picard of Jack's medical diagnosis. Yes. So uh, if people go, oh, it was a violation of HIPAA. But what people typically don't understand is that HIPAA um, actually stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. So most people think that it's a privacy act, but really what HIPAA was designed to do was to say when and how you could get information related to your medical records and that you could move your insurance from one place to another if you, um, if you change jobs or if you moved other places. So that's actually what HIPAA stands for. Uh, but in this case, in part of it, uh, what it allows people to do is to have privacy and say which third parties can have access to their medical information. Um, and I would say that Beverly telling Picard that Jack has a terminal illness and showing him the actual scans is a violation of his rights, unless Jack has said, yes, you can tell uh, my dad about my medical condition, uh, because Jack is of the age of majority, so he's not a minor. It's not as though Picard actually needs to know that information. Uh, and so Jack would then have a cause of action under California law for invasion of privacy. Um, and then so the publication of private facts, hmm, maybe not so much, because under Gates versus Discovery Communications, Inc., uh, the court 
uh, which was which was overruled on other grounds, said that with reckless disregard for the fact that a reasonable person uh, would find the invasion of privacy highly offensive. So you have to have the distribution of the information and someone else would find it highly offensive. I think telling other people, hey, look, I have this incurable mental illness um, that affects my ability, my hold on reality. People might find that to be highly offensive. Yeah, but there's a difference with going dad who died of the disease and i know that's a radically complicated statement uh you know like you you had it you survived it you know that's different than the issue of it being disclosed to multiple third parties or published so i was gonna say yeah i think um uh it's it's not Un, for for legal purposes, I don't believe it is different if you're disclosing it to uh, an interested loved one <laughs> or or someone else. But Josh, it is correct that uh, for public disclosure of private facts, it does have to be made. Uh, it does have to be a public disclosure. Um, so it must be to the public at large, which would be like if you posted it on the internet, um, or uh, to so many people that it is essentially the same. So telling a telling telling lots of different people in ostensibly private communications would probably count. Um, I should hope that this is the only time that Beverly is disclosing this information about her son. So, uh, you know, she, she might be okay on that one element. Yeah. And yeah, I concur that it would probably not meet the publication requirement, but in the episode, I have to look back and see how many other people were in the room. Um, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, people yeah. who were on on the ship with her, and on the screen, it's flashing terminal disease, terminal disease, terminal. You know, that's that's not always an, an awesome look. Uh, but she does actually invade his privacy because he is over the age of majority, and it's his private health information. Yeah, and I did want to say so. I, I'm not an expert in it, but there are um, just like lawyers have, doctors have additional ethical obligations. Um, so while it's not necessarily like a source of civil liability, um, there's I, I I think there's very likely an ethical rule that she's violating here by just sharing with someone who is you know his biological father, but he doesn't have a relationship with him, is not his guardian, as you're pointing out, uh, a very private medical fact, um, which uh, while it may not result in it may or may not result in a lawsuit uh, that Jack could bring, it may result in her getting uh, losing her her license. Right. And there's not even an exception for her. So um, there's an exception for medical professionals to disclose a person's uh, medical information if the person will harm themselves or other if others if they're an immediate threat. And here he's not an immediate threat. Yes, he has these visions and he sees things. But um, Picard is not a person in authority who can prevent him from doing that. He's not the acting. He's not the acting captain. He's not the captain of the ship, and it doesn't appear that Jack is an is an immediate danger to anybody. He's in the bar drinking whiskey, right? Especially at this point, he is now being medicated. So while we learn later that it's not in fact just this this syndrome, um, and is not fully managed by this medication, as far as Doctor Crusher knows at this moment in time, he is not a danger to anyone or himself. Excellent. Great analysis. Well, let's get on to Riker gets captured, and then we see a Starfleet officer just beating that old man senseless. Josh, Josh, this um, yes. <laughs> um, well, let's 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 just start here with the legal analysis. 
No. <laughs> so I do want to point out, this is like the most, the most annoying part of this for me is it turns out that of the three Starfleet, uniformed Starfleet officers in the room involved in this enhanced interrogation of Riker. Two of them were regular Starfleet officers and only one was a changeling. Um, and at the point at which the changeling does, is ready to kidnap Riker, like turns around and shoots the other two. So there were two uniformed Starfleet officers. Uh, uh, you didn't say like, act. whoa. Yes, whoa. exactly. Calm down. What this, are you this doing? This scene would have made so much more sense to me if they'd all been changelings, right? Because then they're 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 not that concerned with whether or not they have legal or moral obligations to a person in their custody. And, um, and I thought that in that in that instance where they had the two regular officers that were just standing around, uh, that that was kind of the producer's nod to the George Floyd incident, um, saying that you're just as liable if you're just standing there. Yeah, and it being your first day is not an excuse for police brutality. So, and, and in Riker's case, like, yeah, he's the war hero who saved the galaxy multiple times. He's also 70. So they're just wailing on a 70-year-old man, and they're standing by letting a captain get socked around. That That's not very Gene Roddenberry track. We're where theoretically, you know, we have the good guys who go like, we don't do that. What's your yeah. problem? It's kind of par for the course for a lot of criminal procedural dramas in the United yeah. States, but it, it definitely should not be par for the course uh, for, for Star Trek um, and has not been. So to, to, to Joshua, to start walking through some of the legal analysis here, um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to start with um, some of the complicating factors uh when it comes to let's let's assume that this this scenario is analogous to um being uh Riker being in the custody of of law enforcement um that is the uh if if that is the most straightforward scenario Riker is a citizen of the Federation he is in the custody of Federation law enforcement officers uh it is uh against the law to physically harm uh someone in government custody um uh it do not believe what all the crime procedural dramas tell you. Um, not only would any uh, uh, confession by Riker here be suppressed under the Fourth uh, Amendment suppression um, effect, so so they they may you know sour lose whatever criminal case they would have against Riker here. Um, Riker would also so Riker would also have causes of action under constitutional tort. Um, uh, for the violation of his rights. So that's under the assumption that, well, maybe what they, they don't really care about getting a confession from Riker, but they're, they're uh, beating him up because they're trying to get intelligence, right? This is the prototypical, like, what is it? Uh, tw 24 or whatever it's thing where they're beating the person to get, where is the bomb? <laughs> Um, uh, if, if you are a Federation citizen, um, you, that, that still cannot happen to you and, uh, you would be able to sue for constitutional tort, even if the suppression clause wasn't your remedy. Um, but there are a couple complicating factors here. The first one is, as I said, so if you are a U.S. citizen or a Federation citizen, um, your rights and protections under the Constitution uh, travel with you. It doesn't matter if the U.S. if, an, if a U.S. official detains you in Peru, um, you still have all of those protections. Um, uh, there's a potential complicating factor here because of changelings. Um, it is 
possible that the Starfleet officers in the room believed that he was in fact not Commander Riker, but was a changeling. Um, uh, in that case, there are there's still one more thing here which might make the difference. Um, even if you are sure, let's just assume that they are absolutely sure that he's a changeling and not uh, Riker, a Starfleet citizen or, or Federation citizen, um, there's still the problem of whether or not this station, because I assume he's still on the station when he's being detained and tortured, uh, is Federation. <laughs> so uh, Federation jurisdiction, essentially. Um, so it's not made fully clear to me, and I wasn't able to find also by poking around to research uh, where Daystrom's station is located. Um, so there's a, a few different like analogies that we could draw. If this is, in fact, a Federation station orbiting a Federation planet in Federation space, most likely under the Federation's jurisprudence of jurisdiction, this would be Federation land territory or uh, similar sort of sort of analogy. Um, and this is really critical in law. That even if you are not a U.S. citizen, if you set foot on U.S. soil, uh, virtually all of the rights and privileges and protections of the Constitution um, and other statutes, with very, very limited exceptions where it specifically says citizen as opposed to person, <laughs> um, uh, you you get all of those protections um, and all of those rights, and it's 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 powerful and it's very important. There's there's a there's you know there's a reason why um, uh, uh, there's a lot of fights over whether or not you should let someone who wants to claim a asylum onto U.S. soil, because there really is essentially a magic power <laughs> with setting foot on U.S. soil. Um, uh, so if this is, in fact, Federation soil, for lack of a better term, um, then all of those protections uh, uh, and, and privileges and, and rights still apply, even if you think that this is not a Federation citizen that you're dealing with. Um, the other possible analogy here is where this is, let's say, uh, neutral space or, you know, uh, uh, the planet of someone who is not in the Federation and their their space, um, but is nonetheless a Federation facility within that space. There are real world analogies for this with Guantanamo. <laughs> Um, and this gets very, unfortunately, very complicated. So uh, uh, the best that I can say right now is that uh, the, the U.S. courts have generally and repeatedly punted on the question of whether or not um, uh, most rights uh, uh, attach to a person who is um, arguably within U.S. control, because Guantanamo is a, is a U.S. controlled facility, but not U.S. soil. Um, at minimum, you do have the right to petition for habeas corpus. That's what the courts have been very comfortable saying. And they've generally kicked the football and everything else. Apparently, as recently as two weeks ago, <laughs> the, the DC circuit uh, punted on yet another question about uh, whether or not certain civil rights attach uh, to a person detained at Gitmo since 2004, I think it was. Uh, so, you know, a uh, really long time. <laughs> uh, but in any event, um, in that circumstance, assuming, like I said, we'll we'll just assume that they think that they're sure that Riker is not a, US, uh, a Federation citizen, and this is not actually Federation soil, but a place being leased, for example, by the Federation, uh, you do have some issues. However, uh, when it comes to determining whether or not someone is a Federation citizen, um, that is one of the most important uh, uh, 
rights that or important facts uh, that a person has. So many rights can uh, can follow with that. Um, there should be some procedure, some level of procedure uh, to determine whether or not someone who claims to be a Federation citizen is in fact a Federation citizen before you can treat them as though they are not. Uh, this is something that has been dealt with on occasion in the courts. For example, when a person is wrongfully deported, even though they were in fact a citizen um, and things like that, it is, uh, uh, if if I can paraphrase, because I'm sure I'm not quoting correctly, uh, perhaps the most dear of all rights that we have um, is whether or not we're, we're a citizen um, and it should not be taken lightly. So in this case, I know it's really hard now to figure out whether or not someone is a changeling, but it, we were not shown that there was any process uh, before he is treated as though he is not. The last piece, sorry, this is a long analysis, I know, but the last piece for why this is still probably wrong <laughs> um, is uh, even assuming that Riker is a changeling, um, uh, there are still laws of war that would apply potentially. Um, and policies uh, that that would apply. Now, I'm going to start from the policy one, which is that kind of like how we were talking about before, this is Starfleet, it's supposed to embody the best of our values. Um, we it it has to be the case that Starfleet has policies against torturing people in Starfleet custody, even if you think they're an enemy combatant, a saboteur, a spy, or what have you. So again, this is like a very serious uh, breach that these two Starfleet officers are committing to what we think are probably Starfleet policies at minimum. Um, the second aspect, though, is a little bit tricky, which is whether or not, uh, assuming that Riker is, a, is in fact a changeling, whether or not he would nonetheless be protected under the laws of war. This is a little bit tricky because prisoner of war status attaches to someone, uh, an enemy combatant um, who is taken prisoner and who is uh, uh, wearing a uni the uniform appearance of the opposing uh, uh, armed forces um, in a way that is distinguishable from non-combatants. Um, I think like you, we could write a little, a whole little article just about that with changelings because they inherently seem to not have a distinguishing um, appearance, uniform appearance um, by their very nature from changelings who are not combatants. Um, but at any rate, uh, uh, it could be argued that Riker was caught as potentially a spy or saboteur, um, wearing, uh, a, a, the, you know, appearing to wear the uniform of Starfleet, but not wearing the uniform of the opposing uh, armed forces. Uh, again, though, this is predicated on the assumption that this is a changeling and not Riker. Um, and it seems to be an extremely important predicate to perform some level and probably a very serious level of process to determine whether or not we are dealing with Riker, Federation citizen and Starfleet officer, or changeling spy who was caught not in uniform. <laughs> uh, and there we don't see any of that. And it's very unfortunate. So you put a lot of thought into this. And I would add the issue of the right to counsel, that if you're taken into custody, you have the right to counsel. Now, several years ago, when we had the horrible bombing during the Boston Massacre, the individual who was captured uh, in record time, it took them a while to give him his Miranda rights. A federal judge went to the hospital and with a defense attorney in tow and gave the bomber his Miranda rights. 
Now, the question then turns into why did they wait that long? And why did a federal judge have to go, I'm a little concerned about this and, and go make sure that the suspect uh, got his Miranda rights? And the issue is you can have an exigent circumstance argument that they were trying to find all the bombs that this individual could have had. Uh, the search of his apartment they wanted to see if it was booby-trapped and if there was, you know, again, other explosives. Um, and you, law enforcement might make the argument that we didn't Mirandaize someone because they wanted to find uh, devices that are a threat. Like, again, the loaded gun, you know, in the playground type situation or a pipe bomb in the playground and uh, but by doing that, they risk the issue of botching the prosecution uh, because they haven't given the suspect the Miranda rights. Yeah, Riker, Riker's not agree. given Riker's not given any sort of Miranda rights. He's just, they're just punching the old dude. Um, Who's again pretty tough for for a seventy year old. You keep picking on him for being seventy years old. In like 12 years, you're going to be 70, and then you're going to be like, what? I'll, I'll be 60 in 12 years. Don't 22, I'll be 70. So uh, that's hurtful. Uh, I'm projecting. He, I'm projecting. He, he's in magnificent shape. He's, he's, he's a zaddy, and we should be proud of that. So and sing his praises. Uh, but yeah, I was just going to agree with you, Josh. There are a whole host of of rights that they're violating here. Um, I was focusing on whether or not they can punch him, since that seems to be the most <laughs> acute problem. <laughs> but, uh, but totally. Uh, and I think to your point, um, I mean, the police technically can keep questioning someone even if they haven't Mirandized them, but that's because the primary remedy in these circumstances is suppression of any evidence that they get. So it is it is a possibility that a law enforcement agency might decide that it is more important right now to to continue to ask this person questions in order to, like I was saying, intel gather intelligence to find if there are other bombs, if there are other bombers, if there are more attacks, if it's booby trapped, but they risk very seriously, uh, losing their case against this particular offender. So I remember in law school, the in criminal procedure, hearing about the Christian burial guilt speech that was the um, guy either he did something horrible. So a child's either kidnapped and killed or kidnapped and left someplace. And it's Christmas. And so the suspect is captured. And like on the long drive back to the police station, you know, the the uh, arresting officers are giving this guilt trip about, you know, making sure that the kid has a, you know, a a good burial because it's Christmas and like playing a lot of uh, empathy type points. And the guy breaks and says where where the kid is. I don't remember all the facts if the child survived or not. But the issue is trying to guilt trip the suspect into confessing after Miranda is problematic. Like you, you shouldn't be doing that type of trickery. Um, if they've asked for the right of right to counsel, the questioning ends. Like you don't get to go and, you know, with a violin in, in hand and and try to break them that way. By way of comparison, 
there's like no effort to get Riker to talk. It's just punch until he breaks and says where the Titan is. Right. And maybe they're trying to determine uh, where, why he's in there because Daystrom Station is, is a pretty confidential spot mm-hmm. and it's already been broken into once before. So they may be fearful of some type of terroristic attack. Yeah, another, because they've already had the, the attack on the uh, recruiting center. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. There are limited exceptions to uh, when you can when you can question someone prior to Mirandizing them. Um, I think you're right, Josh. This would probably, under that theory, it would fall into the, the public safety exception. Uh, still, 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 there's no public safety exception to punching the, the first no, time, no. though. <laughs> No, no, that's just no. We we we're not supposed to do that. Uh, just no. That said, a lot of analysis for dominion and surrender overlap, and that stems from the fact that uh, Titan is playing possum because they treat the audience with respect, and it's the shuttlecraft that has the cloaking device for Worf and Raffi. And they're playing uh, possum in a debris field left over from the Dominion War. And they trick the uh, uh, Vatic uh, on the Shrike to find the Titan and then to board. And that raises this issue of piracy because Shrike isn't a flagged vessel. It, it's not from a, a nation state. These are fanatics as far as uh Picard and company know at this point in, in time so piracy is whoever on the high seas commits the crime of piracy as defined by the law of nations and is afterwards brought into or found in the United States shall be in prison for life going around boarding other ships that, I have the definition under the law of nations <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think I, I cited it last time or in our Mandalorian episode I was gonna say pirates. this we've covered piracy quite a bit lately but Share it. Uh, So this would be under uh, the, I believe it's the United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, Article 101, uh, nice and front and center. Piracy consists of any of the following acts. And for purposes of brevity, I'm only going to read the one that is relevant here. Any illegal acts of violence or detention. So this is both violence and detention. (laughs) Um, Or any act of depredation, also likely fits it, although I'm less familiar with that as a legal term, um, committed for private ends by the crew or the passengers of a private ship or private aircraft um, and directed on the high seas against another ship or aircraft or against persons or property on board such ship or aircraft, against a ship aircraft, uh, persons or property in a place outside the jurisdiction of any state. So that's the emphasis that you were putting, Josh, where this is not a flagged vessel. Um, So this is, for international law purposes, a private ship. It's it's not um, commissioned or or owned by or following the orders of uh, the changelings. Uh, This is a splinter splinter extremist group. Um, uh, And so for, for legal purposes, this is not a state or public ship or aircraft. Yes. So again, just boarding, it's it's a trespass and there's malfeasance afoot with people getting killed, uh, but that happens a little later after the plan goes sideways because, you know, we don't hook up lore to the ship's security system. So 
with Vatic being imprisoned, I think that's a lawful thing to do and to capture her because she's tried to kill them multiple times. She's stalking Jack. I think that's valid. But when our heroes start talking about, do we just kill her? That's a little uncomfortable because Picard and Beverly aren't supposed to do that. And it just shows getting pushed to the breaking point. They don't. But they're in a dark place. Although I was going to say this might be the opportunity to talk about how prisoner of war status um, apply attaches to an enemy combatant who's wearing some kind of uniform, basically. Like, I use that word a little loosely. It could be a uniform appearance. It could be clearly displaying an insignia um, that distinguishes you from non-combatants. And so this is the, like, I think what some people, what some people misunderstand about the law of war, and it's what's what's so dangerous about serving as a spy, for example, Mm -hmm. because you are not very clearly not doing so because you're trying to blend in. And unfortunately, under or or fortunately, I'm not sure, just the way the law of war works is that if a, a if a spy is captured um, by uh, a, a nation, um, having obviously not worn uh, a uniform and having blended in as a civilian or even a member of the other military, um, they don't get those protections. And what that usually means is that you're subject to prosecution under the local laws. Um, uh, if they don't have a policy against abusing uh, uh, prisoners who are accused of spying, that that could be what you're up against. Uh, it just the, the all of the protections that attach to prisoner of war status do not attach to you, and it's and, and we've debated this, and there have been Supreme Court cases after 9/11 with the war on terror on what do we do with members of terrorist organizations. And I should say domestic laws would still apply but if you're on domestic territory and things yeah. like that. Uh, but just in terms of do you get are there added protections by virtue of being a POW under the law of war? And that one is unfortunately probably not working in Vatic's favor here. Yeah. And, but, or fortunately, I guess, because we don't like that. <laughs> but it, it highlights with the war on terror that we've had service members give Miranda rights to Al Qaeda because it's just what we do and like they we were uncomfortable not doing it because we start sounding pretty sinister if we're just capturing again terrorists who want to kill U.S. citizens like they're the bad guys but that doesn't mean that we drop our standards and morality in in order to fight them yeah and I should be clear that like the law of war is not the ceiling it's the floor uh and so you can have additional laws and policies that would govern your conduct um uh in these circumstances it's it's not yeah it's not the ceiling thank you for mentioning that so we focusing a little bit more on surrender so we have the lord trying to do a hostile takeover of the of the body that also houses data and the other memories because apparently the controlling personas are uh, lore and data the other three are more of an archive even though we did hear two of them speak or one we heard sung speak so that hostile takeover raises interesting self-defense type issues with data versus lore and this positronic net uh, Dana, do you want to take the first stab at this? Absolutely not. Okay. 
still, I still like um, just going back to Dominion for just a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's a very interesting uh, concept to me when Jack enters Sydney's mind and directs her body where to go. Oh, yes. And so that creates an interesting dichotomy. And across the country, the law on battery is very different. Um, so, for instance, in uh, um, Georgia, Georgia, uh, a person commits an offensive battery when he or she intentionally causes substantial physical harm or physical, visible bodily harm to another. So it's not enough to just kind of like, hey, girl, how you doing? And it, it calls out that it has to leave um, swollen lips or other facial body parts, substantial bruises to body parts, or substantially blackened eye. Uh, that's very different than California, where it's the unlawful and un- it's the intentional, non-consensual, and harmful or offensive contact by another person. And I could see that someone entering your mind and controlling your body would be probably disturbing. I'm going to pile on here because I think this is a really good point. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Are you going to keep Absolutely. Go right ahead. Uh, I think also this is a really great uh, line of thinking. There's also, we were just talking about invasion of privacy torts. Um, uh, There's, uh, uh, in addition to this time where he is busy uh, controlling her bodily movements, um, we also saw, I think, a preview either in this episode or at the very end of the one before of him reading her thoughts uh, and listening to them. Um, I think you could argue that this fits uh, the intrusion into private affairs tort, which often covers eavesdropping. Um, I think for the original uh, eavesdropping where he's just like hearing her thoughts and then touches her hand because that's what she wanted him to do. Um, probably not because you do have to have a, a harm that was uh, that that happened to a plaintiff and that the eavesdropping or what the, the wrongful conduct has to have been a substantial factor in causing that harm. But in this case, uh, because she is uh, arguably sustaining physical injury <laughs> and, and other batteries uh, as a result of this, um, you might be able to argue that this fits into intrusion into private affairs. I think uh, the other elements are probably met where it's uh, an intentional intrusion that occurred in a place where a person had a reasonable expectation of privacy. The inside of your own brain and your private thoughts is, well, you think we have a reasonable expectation of privacy there. Uh, and a reasonable person would have found the intrusion highly offensive. I think being puppeted by another human being, most people would find pretty offensive. Yeah. And then there's there's always the exception or the defense to that, right? So he's going to argue, hey, you know, I saved your life, but for me interjecting myself into your brain, you were just standing there doing nothing and you were going to die. Just saying, you were going to die. Yep. Now, I thought with the fight that she had where he did the assist, there was an invitation from her when they made eye contact for help. I also wasn't sure with the that fight at that point in time, it was the, the puppeting taking place. If that was more, you know, Grant, we see him doing the same movements. So is he in control or is he like mentoring her on what to do? If it's mentoring, I'm more comfortable with it. If it's, Getting into the driver's seat, I am super uncomfortable with it. It's just, it's really, it's really weird. I do want to point out that also uh, 
we made eye contact as a uh, yeah. evidence um, yeah. of consent um, if this is disputed, right? And it always like, it, it, there has to be a dispute um, uh, about the issue. But if it is disputed and that's the evidence, that's going to be a thin read <laughs> to put yeah. much weight on. <laughs> but, but it's when they make eye contact that she makes a like mental like request for assistance. Right. So I we don't know if he was reading her thoughts and asked, hey, hey, would you let me in? And she said, yes. Right ahead. Please do everything. I want to do what you're doing right now, exactly at the same time. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's watching that. It's like, uh, what's happening here? How's that working? Because it's. And I kept thinking, like, Patrick Stewart played, you know, Professor X. What's what are we doing here? So. Well, I am. I am very intrigued. Do a disco move. Make her do a disco move at the very end. Yeah, I. (laughs) You know, he was clearly flirting with her. Like I would not. He was doing a lot of wrong things. I would not finish it off with that, just to end up in the creep category forever. Like there, there'd be no way out at that point. So, um, no, no disco moves. All right. Let's go Wait, back. I guess I should also mention while we're on the topic of Jack puppeting people, assuming he is in fact controlling people, which I think he has, he did state that. He can, can, can do and got yeah. a guy killed. That's what I was going to say. Uh, there might be some upset decedents there who so would the, want to sue him. This is where I think, I, I think the issue gets complicated. Uh because it's a combat situation and the changelings are just killing Starfleet officers left and right. So the crew of the Titans being hunted. Was that guy going to stay safe? Or is this like a weird trolley hypothetical? Or the fact that did Jack put him into a more dangerous situation by just looking around? It, I mean, he, him. he took him from a point of safety. I mean, the guy could have been near Jeffrey's tube, hop in the Jeffrey's tube and hide out. Right. And I, so instead he walks them past a dangerous zone. He's looking around and not paying attention um, to his surroundings. And we know from Jack's takeover of Sydney that he's capable of, of, of doing physical moves of defending himself. And he just didn't do that. Yeah. I think in this circumstance, he was still feeling out the scope of his powers. Um, and so was not acting with full awareness or responsibility, like you're pointing out, Dana, uh, it seemed to me that in this particular circumstance, it is certainly not a foregone conclusion that this Starfleet poor Starfleet officer, uh, would have died in this circumstance and certainly would have died in that circumstance. Uh, uh, he might have been able to defeat this particular uh, combatant um, had he been in full control of his own body. Yeah, it's not it's not good. Uh, and notice he doesn't explain what just happened. <laughs> so no, he doesn't feel sufficiently guilty or traumatized by the experience, in my opinion. He's, I think he's in the I don't want to talk about what just happened ever, like ever. I will never share this information. So. Uh, and that's guilt. <laughs> that's that's guilt. Uh, so, lore. Yes. 
Uh, I'm happy to talk about this for a second. You've got a good theory. Take it away. (laughs) So um, this is a really interesting, you know, science fiction circumstance where there are multiple personas, but we'll simplify our analysis for now to the two that you mentioned, Josh, are not data banked, um, uh, lore and data that are sharing the body. And it seems to be uh, there is no, you know, existential threat as they are with the two consciousnesses in the same neural net uh, or positronic matrix in the body. They could both live there together. <laughs> um, uh, and yet, lore being lore, uh, wants to erase data and and gain full control of the body. You would think that this is maybe not a circumstance that our present day laws are adequately suited to, uh, I would argue that it might be <laughs> so. And that's simply because usually the definitions of, of homicide um, are not incredibly specific. They use words like killing, <laughs> ending the life of an individual, um, as opposed to something very specific like uh killing by harm to the body or things like that, that would uh, limit it to what we think of in today's terms of murder, because you you normally have to kill a body in order to kill a person. Um, uh, in this circumstance, I think Lore's acts do fit within the definition uh, for homicide um, and murder under existing Statutes. So this would be uh, uh, California uh, Penal Code, uh, Chapter 1, Section uh, uh, 187. A murder is the unlawful killing of a human being or uh, etc. with malice aforethought. Now, for purposes of this, the human being in, in the Federation laws, uh, data has been determined to be a person um, for legal purposes. So assuming that this uh, law has been updated to reflect person instead of human being, um, I think it would actually fit, which is interesting. It's not what I expected when I first started poking around this issue. Um, Of course, he does not succeed, but nonetheless, it is attempted murder. (laughs) Um, On the converse side, uh, when Data uh, essentially, I think it's arguable that he he ends Lore's life as Lore knows it. uh, it, you know, even though there's there's an aspect of sort of absorbing lore into himself, uh, he does say goodbye to his brother. Uh, so I think there is some acknowledgement that he is in some way uh, killing lore. Um, in that circumstance, though, which is why I emphasize that they could have both peacefully cohabited the body, um, I think Data would have a self-defense defense because lore was actively involved, <laughs> engaged in attempting to kill him. Dana, did you have any thoughts? You looked like you were about to talk. I was like, absolutely. Uh, I would agree wholeheartedly that Lore was attempting to commit homicide. And Data did have self-defense rights. Um, but how far could he go? Could he just go to immobilize Lore? Could he just take over enough control so that he could immobilize him? Or did he have to actually end his personality? Uh, because the defense that you have is limited to what you need. You can't overstep. Um, you have to move to a place of safety. And so I think that data probably overstepped there. I don't agree. I think Lore's actions were a clear, constant threat to eradicate data. And, you know, even at the end, you know, it was for complete control, complete domination. And Lore was er thinking he was erasing data while data was, showing his true poker face and being able to bluff his way to to a victory that did not 
actively uh, require taking a life because his ethical programming prevent him from doing so. So he found a way to survive that also comports with his ethical programming to not kill anyone and uh, valid under self-defense laws. I have three things. I'm going to try to not forget them. The first is that uh, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with Josh and agree with Dana that um, uh, uh, it, you know, when it comes to the self-defense defense, to to uh, murder or assault, um, uh, it, you know, ha- facing what you perceive to be um, or may really be a continuing threat is typically is not what we look at. Um, in those circumstances, you have to you have to go to the government and appeal to law enforcement to put an end to the threat. Of course, we understand that that is not maybe practical in this circumstance, but that is nonetheless uh, not a valid uh, uh, defense for for self defense. That you think that there is no end to this unless this person is is incapacitated or. Ended. Uh, but not what I'm going, I meant. <laughs> uh, but I am also going to acknowledge that um, uh, in this circumstance, and this is probably where the law is very poorly suited to this circumstance, among many other reasons, um, that data may not have had any other means at his disposal. Um, uh, and so, you know, in such a circumstance where there's just the button to kill or not kill, and by pressing the by not pressing the kill button, you accept you will you will die. That that might be a very narrow exception to that. And 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 that brings up a, a good point um, that supports Josh's position in that there's in a lot of jurisdictions there's no duty to retreat. Right. So once someone has uh, presented themselves and you feel at, at uh, fear for your life or safety or the serious life or safety of others, there's no duty to retreat. And so and also in, in support of Josh, arguably, ar- yeah, I was going to say, arguably, there's even no ability to retreat within your right. own body. Right. It's your own body where you're going to go. <laughs> even yeah, even if he had a duty to retreat. And then the last bit that I was just going to say um, is what. Uh, again, another topic that existing law is very, very poorly suited to address because we have yet to envision facing such a circumstance is what Josh pointed out that uh, very arguably what data is doing is not in fact killing or homicide. Um, but since apparently, uh, as Josh pointed out, his ethical programming prevents him from doing so, he is absorbing lore and lore continues to exist, but as part of a combined entity um, with Data's personality as sort of the predominant uh, personality. Uh, We obviously don't have anything like to deal with that in our law. And this reminds me of a 1970s kind of uh, chic horror film where there was a two-headed man. And so there was an African-American male and someone grafted another person's head on his body and then he wanted to kill him and take over the whole body. Because he was racist. Let's not forget that part. Yes, yes. So that was very interesting. So it's like, uh, what's old is new again. (laughs) Yeah, there's a need to go look up the name of that film. But yeah, the my friends on Monster Party have discussed it multiple times. And there's a cat. So Jack says hi. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There are notes about the removal of dead bodies is that who I think we kind of already covered that in another in in our previous section yeah so one thing that I had mixed feelings about is 
when they, they retake the ship and Raffi's killing changelings with blade weapons, which I didn't know would work. Uh, Worf is then disposing of the bodies with a phaser. And that, I don't know how to feel about that. I mean, it's tactically the right thing to do because you don't want them getting back up, causing problems again. But it's either making the rubble bounce, it might be desecration of a corpse, or it's just it's just the double tap to the head to make sure it doesn't get back up again. And I I I have super mixed feelings about whether that was legally right, even if it was the tactically sound thing to do. Well, I, I do agree that it was the tactically sound thing to do because they know that the change lanes have developed and changed so much so that they can pass a blood test, right? So you can cut them and they will bleed. Um, we just don't know how they, what other functions they might have. They might fall down and then get back up. Uh, so I think that it was definitely the tactically sound thing to do. Um, in that case, since they're going in to rescue someone, um, I think that they are okay. I mean, it's it's a terrible thing to do, but I don't think that it's illegal uh, to rescue uh, someone from an enemy, you know, uh, uh, terrorists who are holding them captive. Oh, it's the rescue is absolutely fine. I'm I'm way on board with Worf and Raffi, you know, taking out the bad guys left and right. It's the cleanup crew that I had mixed feelings about on whether or not that's okay. And which brings us to the, you know, again, the classic Picard plan to blast the bad guys out the airlock. And we get to hear Seven get say, get off my bridge in a very Air Force One type of way. And uh, uh, and and Vadic's reply for uh, something I won't say, uh, but again, last. I'll say it. <laughs> oh, get off my bridge! Get off my bridge! So so good, so good. Terrible uh, humans. Yes. Uh, Terrible solids. You're a bad bad man. Uh, and then she gets sucked out into space and shatters and we get to see, you know, uh, Shaw take back command with stations and like they don't, <laughs> we're now in the zone of uh, you're going to find out what you, what you just unleashed and uh, they dispose of the Shrike and I hope they picked up Picard's corpse because it'd be weird if they had left it and then they blowed it up. Uh, that would I'm like, would you tell him? Yeah, we found your body. We left it there and then we blew it up. You're still going to have weird feelings like uh, maybe I wanted my former body to have a good burial. Like this is, again, it's a weird thing. It's just That's kind so of, weird. Yeah, it, It's so weird. And then with her floating into space and breaking into a, a gazillion pieces, didn't they kind of do that in DS9 and they reformed back together? Yeah, but I you look that wrong. Yeah, I think they can survive in the vacuum of space as long as eventually they are recovered. <laughs> yeah, so the I think she could be recovered, but I don't know what the modification if the vacuum of space would kill them if swords can kill them now. So that sounds because they're they're like organic looking as opposed to gooey looking. That's and again, they're different. So, so again, maybe we see her rise again 
but that's a lot of Vatic shards to go find. I know. I was really hoping that instead of breaking apart into pieces, she would head like right into that deflector thing and just get incinerated. <laughs> but oh well. <clears throat> then we know she's gone. I mean, this would take, you know, with the way just space works and so they shattered. All the pieces are going different directions forever and ever and ever. So collecting everything, passage of time, all those shards are going different places. I find it fascinating and said that there could be like 4,000 different Vatics. <laughs> that could be. She, I mean, she does cut off her hand and then the other thingy appears. Yeah, but then the hand retaches. Right, but so like our, like our changelings. Reattach in space. Yeah, but also I'm wondering if Changelings can be like starfish. <laughs> yeah, Odo couldn't. So, but can the new breed breed that way? Uh, how do they reproduce? I don't know. Regardless, it was very satisfying uh, to see them solve the Vatic problem. And we end with a nice conference room table where they're all discussing what they need to do. And I did want to note that uh, I did find the development of Vatic's character also very interesting that while I think it's safe to say that none of us agree or endorse her actions, uh, it, it makes it makes Vatic a much more sympathetic character um, to have had this horrible crime um, committed upon them and their friends and family uh, uh that it's, it's, it, it seems almost inevitable that uh, a person subjected to that would would want to return violence. And then she's not even accepted by her own people. They treat her differently because uh, she's now slightly different. Yeah. But she did have legal remedies against the Federation. And so trying to wage a genocidal war is probably not the right way to handle that. I, I was going to say legal remedies, except for the part where she escaped, because I yeah. don't know that she had the ability to petition anybody from a, a test tube file. <laughs> yeah, that is hard. But once she had escaped, like, you know, escape laws are um, familiar with those from Luke Cage, that if you escape, you still have to make an effort to turn yourself into non-corrupt law enforcement. Uh, in order for, you know, the wrongs to be righted. Um, but that would be like, again, th this is extrapolating, but like if you escape the corrupt state prison, going to the feds and saying like, they're violating my civil rights, uh, this would be, I was at this uh, section 31 black site, you know, which would be like the equivalent of waterboarding uh, and other bad things that uh being able to say my rights have been violated she conducted experiments on me no like <laughs> this violates your own laws you don't get you don't i'm not your guinea pig um but that would require finding counsel yeah i have to say it is not the there's been a series of things we've discussed today that were not the finest hour for the Federation um, and the degree to which the Federation and Starfleet, uh, often related to Section 31, uh, seem to be willing to uh, uh, compromise or ignore their own principles, if not laws, uh, can be very troubling. Yeah, it's it just goes to show the historic pendulum, right? So we have a group or an agency that goes from ascent from one extreme 
And then they swing over towards making things right all the way to another extreme. And then they start to head back. And I think that that's where um, Starfleet is headed. They go from their violent past to heading back to another violent uh, future because they think that they're justified. Yeah, and... Mm. There's no such thing as a completely bad person or a completely good person. Um, but I just was, it, it, it ruined it for me because I was hopeful that in the future, in the future, in Star Trek land, there was, a, there were people just were better. I guess I'm not too bothered by that in the sense that it, it is always hard to stick to your principles. Um, and the only time that principles actually matter is when it's really hard. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of okay with the idea that it is a a essential human failing that we, even in the distant future, will sometimes at least, although hopefully less often, uh, fail to stick by our principles. But uh, I agree, it's still a little bit sad. Because it's always the right time to do the right thing. Yeah, there's part of the challenge when a free society goes to war and they make adjustments in, in order to win the war that you then go back, you know, and you learn from the mistakes. So you don't, you know, you, you learn from World War I uh, because after World War II, you don't want to have a World War Three. So you, you learn from the first mistakes that caused a second world war. So you don't repeat that. Martial law ended in Hawaii much too late in the game after Pearl Harbor. So it took a while for, uh, despite the fact courts were back, for martial law to ratchet down. And it took a court case for that to happen. Those are the challenges when, you know, like after a terrorist attack, you know, our blood pressure is high and we enact measures to protect people. And it's like, okay, I'm fine taking off my shoes at the airport because the comparative harm of what's more inconvenient, my shoes coming off or dying screaming from a bomb on an airplane. I'm okay taking my shoes off. However, there are other things that we, we need to look at and go like, are we really comfortable staying this way? And those are the things that warrant discussion. You know, the fact that we just recently, you know, knocked out the, you know, authorization to use force from, you know, 9-11. You know, it's like that was 20 years ago. So we were justifying military operations on something from 20 years ago. And those are the things that we have to think about of if we need to use force, we need a, a force bill in order for us to you know, wage combat. That means we have to make that decision and Congress has to vote on it as opposed to just punting to go, well, we got this thing from you know, 2001, we're just gonna use that. So those are, the, those are the hard questions for a free society that has to fight to defend itself. So is Star Trek in this part of the Federation, are they still ramped up post-Dominion War? post-Borg invasion, that they're still in a high-stress, mixed uh, situation with, like, what is the right balance now? Well, I'm going to start 
by taking issue with what I think was the most profound statement you made, Josh, which was, uh, I actually don't think that anything we do at the airport is anything more than security theater. <laughs> but <laughs> um, besides that, I will I will say that, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about uh, this topic, uh, but it is it is worth noting that, uh, you know, the, the, the Federation used a uh, biological weapon, arguably attempted genocide against the changelings in the Dominion War. Um, and, you know, in order to avoid being conquered by the Dominion, in order to avoid being subject to their laws and their norms. Uh, but if you are essentially, I mean, you, you talked about how the Dominion used a biological weapon on an entire planet. If you are essentially adopting the means of your and the values of your adversary in order to defeat them, um, are, you know, what are you actually fighting over? <laughs> nothing worth living in so yeah not good not good yeah just not good so i know uh, it's i know it's late and it's overtime so i i will let that be my last my last thought this will be your last battlefield so for tonight there will be many more (laughs) oh my goodness i feel another theater coming on it's gonna be great Yes. So again, two more episodes left in a post-credit scene. Go watch the box right now because it's a it's a very solid episode. So with that, everyone, wherever you are, thank you for tuning in. We covered three episodes. It's been a lot. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky. Take care now. <laughs>